This morning, uh, from John chapter 15, verses 18 to 27. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it had hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. There's a lot of instances in the Gospel of John where a particular text is either too big or maybe a little bit too small, this is one of those. This section of John chapter 15 serves as a bit of a bridge between what we were considering together last week where Jesus said, abide in me, abide in my love. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. And where we're going next Lord's Day, if the Lord is willing, into chapter 16 where we'll be talking about the Holy Spirit and the way that the Holy Spirit works to empower the people of God to actually do these things that Jesus is talking about in this section. But here we have kind of an interesting little segue from Jesus telling his disciples, abide in me, to this is what you're going to be doing as you abide in me and as the Holy Spirit comes to abide in you. So it, it's a little bit of a strange um, section to isolate like this, but I, I think God has something that he wants to share with us here today. The early Christians were, on all accounts, really good neighbors to one another and to the world. Tertullian, a second century Christian apologist, appealed to this very thing when he wrote a letter to the Roman authorities in AD 197. In the face of cruel opposition and persecution of the church, he wrote, we are a body knit together as such by a common religious profession, by unity of discipline, and by the bond of common hope. We meet together as an assembly and congregation that, offering up prayer to God as with united force, we may wrestle with him in our supplications. This violence God delights in. We pray, too, for the emperors, for their ministers, and for all in authority, for the welfare of the world, for the prevalence of peace, for the delay of final consummation. As I was reading through 
this apology by Tertullian, I found that an interesting expression because what he's saying is the church of his day actually prayed that Christ would not return right away because they saw the need of the world and they saw how many people still needed to hear the gospel. And so they said they didn't pray. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice if God would return and get us out of here? They prayed that God would delay that final consummation of his kingdom so that more people could be brought into the kingdom of God. We assemble to read our sacred writings. If any peculiarity of the times makes either forewarning or reminiscence needful. However it be in that respect with the sacred words, we nourish our faith. We animate our hope. We make our confidence more steadfast and no less by inculcations of God's precept, we confirm good habits. And all of that and the text that surrounds it in this document by Tertullian also gives us a really good description of what it meant to be the church just about 150 years after the apostles, a little less than that even, after the apostles were gone. They were meeting together to read the word. They were meeting together to nourish their hope and their discipline and their faith and so many things. It really didn't look that different already at 200 AD than what we have seen in the church down through the ages. So just a really good little reminder of who we are. And we read the same sort of thing in the book of Acts. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distrib distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. But just a couple of chapters later, Luke also wrote, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. They were good neighbors to each other and to the world round about. In fact, they were so committed to loving one another in this way that there came a time when the apostles appointed seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and first among those seven, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The result of that, Acts 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now that's all happening in just the first couple of years after Pentecost. But as Stephen began to engage in this work of distributing food to the poor and especially to the Grecian widows in the church, he also began to engage in evangelistic dialogue with some from among the various Jewish communities that were constantly present in Jerusalem who had a major problem with what he was teaching. In fact, they thought that this gospel that Stephen was proclaiming and teaching in word and indeed was actually blasphemy 
against Moses and against the law and against the temple. So they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Now the one thing in that story of Stephen, which we looked at quite a while back as we went through the book of Acts, is that Stephen doesn't seem the least bit surprised that any of that is happening as he is drugged before the council to give an account of himself. He's quite ready to do so, and no wonder. The first verses of our text this morning read, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, those words were spoken directly to the 11. Excuse me. They were spoken directly to the 11. Judas was gone at this point. And they were spoken just hours before the Lord Jesus, the speaker himself, would die in shame and agony on a Roman cross. So the disciples had no reason to question, what does it mean the world hated me first? It's also true that this lesson would come to have a very particular and personal application to each of them. As far as we can tell from history, all of the 11 ended up giving their lives for their faith one way and another. And Stephen would certainly have come to understand that this is the reality that God's people live in in this fallen world. And he was just the first of a great multitude, many of whose names are remembered only by God. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now the irony here is that it was God's love for this world, this cosmos in the Greek of hate, that put his son, Jesus Christ, on that cross. Remember John chapter 3, verse 16, I'm sure you do. For God so loved the world, he loved the cosmos, the creation, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But apparently love, at least love, as defined by God's sacrifice of his son, is not generally well received by the world. In John 19, Jesus had come to the world, he came to his own. But they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, and there they crucified him. This was the world's definitive answer to the love of God in Christ Jesus then. And it would remain the world's answer to God's love in Christ Jesus. Chapters 14 to 17 of the Gospel of John are a record of Jesus preparing his disciples for what their lives would be like when Jesus was no longer physically present with them. Because he knew that, that they would not, as Isaac Watt would later write, be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease. He knew that if the world hated him, then it was going to hate them too. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. 
but all these things they will do to you on account of my name. So whether they choose to persecute or to keep the word, it's not about us, it's on account of the name of Jesus. It's on account of the message that we proclaim. So here we have an answer to that perennial question, why do they hate us? And sadly, sometimes I think we have let the world answer this question for us. We have let the world define what the terms of love would look like. And we have assumed that if we would just love the world on its own terms, then they would love us back. Now, of course, if we love the world on its own terms, then we are being disobedient, even if they do love us back. The Apostle John would later write, and we're just coming to this in our evening study, so next week, do not love the world. Do not love the cosmos, same word, or the things in the cosmos. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. But didn't we just read, just moments ago, that God himself loved the world, loved the cosmos? Well, yes, we read John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Or as we've noted before, when we were studying John chapter 3, we might better translate that. This is how God loved the world. It's not a matter of indefinable quantity. We, we use the word that way sometimes. I do it myself. I, I you know, um, am saying thank you to someone who has served me in a restaurant, and I'll say, thank you so much. And then I turn and walk out the door. Um, by the way, if you're going to say that, at least leave a really good tip, because um, then they know how much, what that so means. I thank you so much, I'm going to leave 20% this time instead of five or none. Um, but we've talked about this before. As children, we get into this habit of saying to our parents, I love you so much, Mom, which is an incomplete sentence. I love you so much, I will do the dishes, I will mow the lawn, I will clean my room, I will be obedient, I will do what you tell me, makes sense. I love you so much is meaningless. Because so is one of those words, it's, it's not about quantity, it's about definition. This is how God loved the world. You want to know how much God loves the world? Well, here it is in black and white. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. By the way, John 3.16 does not address the question of who will or who can believe. It simply says that this is the definition of God's love for the world. When God looked at the world that he made and he saw that man had fallen into sin, had broken covenant with him, had brought the curse on creation... He determined to love the world, not by accepting, well, this is the way things are now. The world is broken. Let's just embrace it and affirm it. He loved it by providing a remedy for that brokenness. He loved the world by sending his only son so that anyone who would believe in him would not perish 
which was important because as we read in 1 John, the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In John 3, it was that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. This is how God loved the world. He sent his son to die for our sin and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to call people to himself. Now, we might think that the world, if they would just hear about God's great gift of love, would just automatically turn to him and say, well, if God loved me that much, then I guess I should love him back. But Jesus said quite the opposite in John 15, verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Jesus is saying, God sent me into the world to proclaim this gospel of reconciliation, but in proclaiming the gospel of reconciliation, not only in words, but also in works, it made clear to the world that something was broken and needed fixing. See, in calling people to trust and follow him, Jesus was calling them to repent. He was calling them to turn away from sin. He did not offer them their best life now in terms of the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, all those worldly things which are not from the Father but are of the world, far from it. He offered them truly their best life now and later in terms of turning away from sin, turning away from those things that characterize life in this world. The message of the gospel. Paul wrote it in Colossians chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Whatever in you is of this world. And then he goes on. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put all of those things to death. They are of the world. Christ didn't come and save you so that you could remain in and of the world and the world could remain in and of you. He came to save you from that. So put that stuff to death, all of it. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Jesus said it like this, repent. Put that stuff to death, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A simple expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's why they hated him. And that's why they hated his father, precisely because he did not come to ignore our sin, much less validate and affirm it. Rather, he came to deliver us from those things that hold us in bondage to the world. They hated him for telling the truth about their sin and for calling them to turn away from it. 
In other words, they hated him because he loved them more than anyone else has ever loved anyone else, but he loved them on God's terms. If you love these people, you will have to go and die and bear their sin, and then they can be saved. He didn't just come and hang out with sinners and give them the odd noogie and tell them that everything will be fine, don't even worry about it. He came and he called them to repentance. He called them to faith. He called them to come into the kingdom of God through faith in him. And that explains verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. They hated the one who loved more than anyone else has ever loved And they hated his father who sent him into the world at just the right time to redeem us from the curse of the law. It's why they hated Jesus and it's why they inevitably hate his people when we preach the message of Jesus. And if the Lord is willing, we'll be talking about this more next Lord's Day. But for now, understand that the gospel... The word of God is, according to the writer to the Hebrews, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's kind of like saying, in a nutshell, the word of God is dangerous. It is alive, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And the writer to the Hebrews goes on, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed. Those are uncomfortable words. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's what God's word does, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, which is to say that while the gospel will sometimes comfort the afflicted. It will come as a word of comfort to those who have been drawn to Christ through the Holy Spirit. It will always afflict the comfortable. To be naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account is not a pleasant thing, just the opposite of a pleasant thing. And this is what the truth of the gospel does. It's the message that Christ proclaimed. It is the message that we are called to proclaim. In verse 26, Jesus said, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. Now we're going to see the dynamics of that when we get into John chapter 16. But let me just give you a little preview. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you, the church, another comforter. And when he comes, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world. So it's an interesting thing. God sends the Holy Spirit into us, into his people, but the mission of the Holy Spirit is not to us specifically, it is to the world to convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit will come and bear witness, and in that light you also will bear witness. So if they hated him, if they hated Jesus when he came and spoke to them, 
what will they do with his followers? We don't have to speculate. We've already seen it. Verses 20 and 21. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Then chapter 16 opens with these words. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Maybe you're thinking, wow, you just spent the last several verses talking about how the world is going to hate you um, and persecute you and, and not listen and all of those. It almost sounds like they're designed to make people fall away. Wouldn't it have been easier if God had just made the gospel a little more user-friendly, the sort of thing that would appeal to the baser instincts of sinners and draw them into a relationship with Jesus because Jesus promises to make them rich, for instance. But Jesus said these things to keep his people from falling away because that's not how the gospel was going to work. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Ask Stephen what that meant. After he proclaimed the word before the council, they screamed. <laughs> they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears. That image just astonishes. He's trying to preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they scream, and they put their fingers in their ears, and they rush him. Then they cast him out, not only of the temple and the synagogue, but out of the city. And once they had him outside the walls, they stoned him. And they will do these things, because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You re may remember I said, this is what will happen. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, he said, and in other places. That doesn't indicate. Wolves do love sheep, I guess, in a sense. They find sheep very tasty. But they don't love sheep in a nurturing sort of, hey, let's make a community together sort of way. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, which I think is probably an indicator that if the world loves us, it's kind of a problem, really. It's not a good thing. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But remember this word that Jesus spoke, because it's not about you. It's about him. And you are not alone. To the disciples in that day, Jesus spoke in the future tense, but when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. But now in Christ, you also 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come. The helper is here. He dwells within the people of God. He has sealed us past tense and has become the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it, until Jesus comes back and receives his people to himself and we receive that inheritance which is ours in him. The Spirit has sealed us to keep us certain that we belong to him to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord, and it is the promise of God to all who believe. Jesus said to them, and it applies to the church today, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Whatever the mission of Christ was when he came into that world, he's now passed that mission on to his people. And it's not that we can die for the salvation of others. We can't. We couldn't even die for the salvation of ourselves. But it's that the message of what Christ did, what he came to do, the message that he came to pay the price for our sin, to shed his blood for the remission of our sin, has to be carried out into the world. And that part is up to us, but not alone When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Even so, they and we have all that we ever need. We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of the living God. And we go then and carry the message of the cross to all who will listen. Some will persecute you and hate you for it. Others will love the Lord and hear the word and embrace it. The outcome is not ours to even predict, never mind effect. The outcome belongs to the spirit, but the task belongs to us.